Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the new statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week, we're talking about the new film Call Me By Your Name and the documentary Leonora Carrington, The Lost Surrealist. We've also listened to the BBC podcast Tracks for the first time, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. And thanks to all of you who tuned in last week for our discussion about the new Louis Tomlinson single. I think we gained some new listeners last week from just the many very devoted Louis Tomlinson fans who will literally listen to anything that has his name in and read anything that mentions him. Very dedicated stuff. So really appreciate it, guys. You know, fandom is our home. We love it. Yeah, there were some great tweets as well. I think quite a lot of people felt that we'd been you know fair to his song Mm. rather than dismissing it maybe like it was in other outlets but you know that's what we're here for to take things seriously yeah and I guess we have a a bias sample pool but it was interesting how many Louis Tomlinson fans were saying yeah that that's the direction I want him to go into Mm. existing Louis Tomlinson fans so it's not like he's winning over you know fans of another genre necessarily but his own fans seem to think it fits him best but as I say, I'm sure there are just as many who don't who don't think that, but the ones who got in touch with us definitely seem to agree. Yeah, so that was very nice. Thank you very much for listening. From one cute boy to some more cute boys. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that we're going to be talking about this week is Call Me By Your Name, which is a coming-of-age film directed by Luca Guadagnino based on the 2007 novel of the same name by Andre Ackerman. It stars Timothée Chalamet as Elio Perlman, a young man living in Italy, and documents his relationship with his father's American assistant Oliver, played by Army Hammer. I heard so much hype about this film before I saw it, and mm. I've been following a bit of a conversation on Twitter today about hype and whether, you know, something can be ruined by hype, because I feel like more than ever in kind of the film conversation that I'm an observer of online if not you know actively participating in there's a kind of conversation about whether when something gets too much hype it dies and we've seen so many backlashes in the last few years I feel like every film gets hyped and then get has a big backlash call me by your name has been a very very hyped film 
but one that I think was utterly deserving of it and I didn't feel disappointed at all going in. It's one of those films that, to describe the plot, I think can feel a little beside the point. It is this beautiful romance between Elio and Oliver. Oliver's older, you know, he's exotic in some way. He's like this cool American who comes into this very beautiful Italian setting, you know, Elio and his family live in this gorgeous Italian chalet, Mm. big rambling villa. And they summer there and also spend Christmas there. It's not necessarily their main residence. There's loads of different languages kind of spilling out of everyone's mouths. Everyone speaks German and French and Italian and Spanish and English, all with perfect, you know, American or Italian or whatever accents. There's loads of nice food everywhere, loads of like nice cheese and fruits and you know, runny eggs. And then, yeah, this kind of relationship begins between the two men. And, you know, Elio is very young. He's 17. Oliver is, I think, in his, like, mid to late 20s. It starts off very, very gently, and it takes quite a long time before we see anything resembling kind of sexual affection between the two of them. But really, it's about the tension that sexual tension which Mm. eventually becomes something much more meaningful and beautiful and it's about all their kinds of like shared experiences their shared interests and like just sharing in this beautiful warm delicious setting which I could have literally watched it for hours especially at the moment in London where it's horrible and rainy and I don't know the opposite of sexy (laughs) London is such a like Mm. non-sexy place (laughs) and then you like watch (laughs) these beautiful couples just you know being really at one with each other and really tactile with everyone around them like even watching like the way that these men interact with older women like their mothers or maids you know everyone's so tactile and so relaxed and it's a whole way of being that's beyond just this romance. So this that's my very rambly way of saying that it's a film that kind of extends way beyond its plot and into something more aesthetic, which I guess is something we've seen from Guadagnino's other films, like A Bigger Splash, which we talked about last year on Seriously, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And it seems to be a bit of a characteristic of him as a director doesn't it because I have to say I haven't actually seen this film I was thwarted by the fact that it was not showing anywhere in Liverpool which is really sad I mean it's been out for a little while I think in the UK which is yeah it was on briefly at like the one independent cinema here and then it stopped after a week or something and I just missed it it's my own fault hopefully it will because it as you say has all of the Oscar awardsy buzz it will come back into cinemas if it you know wins a golden globe or something and it's still showing down here so if you do find yourself so yeah to to make up for me not being able to see it i read the whole novel yesterday and i've seen people talking about this on twitter as well it is different to the film because obviously it's a book it's not a film the setting and the sort of atmosphere of of it is a lot more implied it's not you know he he doesn't spend like pages and pages describing the runny eggs or anything Mm -hmm. like that and it does focus a lot more on the characters but it does have just a really clean and comfortable feeling about it as a book so I completely devoured it on rainy Sunday and yeah just felt completely transported and it was wonderful that's so interesting that you say that because while I was watching this film I felt so almost like I was basking in that sunlight with them and I I had a moment of thinking like oh you couldn't get this from a novel you couldn't get the same 
level of sensory pleasure from a novel which is obviously utterly bullshit because you can (laughs) and there are so many novels that I love for their ability to do that but I think it's maybe testament to this film that that thought entered my head Mm. because (laughs) I felt like it was doing so much work in that area that I even entertained the idea that it was like inherent in the medium of film, which it's not, but it it made me think that for a minute, which is interesting. It made total sense to me once I was reading more about the film online and I saw that James Ivory wrote the script for it. Mm. James Ivory famously one half of the Merchant Ivory Mm -hmm. film production duo because he directed things like The Remains of the Day and Howard's End and Merchant and Ivory were behind things like Room with a View. All of those kind of Mm. 90s, 2000s, really lush, interesting representations of people in landscape and emotional repression and stuff like that. That's really true. The Italian scenes from Room with a View, I actually once went on holiday specifically to a place in Italy just because it had been used as a location in that film (laughs) because that's how cool (laughs) I am but I think James Ivory is very good at translating the atmosphere of a novel particularly if it's a kind of atmosphere of absence rather than presence Mm. into a visual medium. It's really interesting that you say that as well because a lot of those films are all about the impossibility of having a transgressive romance for Mm. some reason whether that's because of I don't know like age or impossibilities of of class class or anything exactly all these kinds of taboos that are much more something we associate i think much more with period films from the turn of the century and so on this is set in the 80s this movie and Mm. the taboo in their relationship is the fact that they're two men and that's something that's still in the 80s in rural italy you know still something that's a, a bit difficult although one thing that i really liked about this film is how loving and supportive Elio's parents are and Mm. how it doesn't have to fall into those cliches of the parents kind of like shutting them out even though that's a very valid experience for many people especially I'm sure at that time it's just nice to see another portrait and another story and I think Timothée Chalamet is incredible in this movie his performance is amazing and I know that there's been a huge buzz around Army Hammer in this Mm, film as, as an Oscar campaign but I just think Timothée Chalamet like absolutely was by far the thing that I just couldn't keep my eyes off in this movie. He's so beautiful and he's so expressive and so his performance is so subtle. You know, he is really young. He's 21. I don't know. It's really hard when someone's got something on screen that is beyond just being like a good actor of emotions and becomes just like that kind of Brando-esque, like I actually just can't stop looking at you charm. But he's really got that for me. And the last shot of the movie, this, this isn't necessarily a spoiler, but the last shot of the movie is a very long shot that just stays on his face while the credits start to roll. And he's there for bloody minutes, like really long time. <laughs> it's it's incredible that you don't ever get bored, you know, and he's really compelling and he, you know, do it's a very emotional moment and he's giving it everything and it's nuanced and in lots of ways there's just something about him that I couldn't take my eyes off and it's nice to see that he's got actually loads of very um interesting films coming up I think he's in Lady Bird which you know I really want to see the the Greta Gerwig film and yeah you didn't go to the there was a a screening in London I think last week yeah everyone seemed um, to go I know everyone on my Instagram was at that screening I'm really annoyed and 
I felt like you and I were the only people I who know. were not at that screen. It's so annoying, and it's not coming out for ages here either. It's so yeah. yeah, annoyed, and I've, I have, you know, I'm trying to get into some other ones, so we'll see how it goes. But yeah, you know, I'm rambling on, and I'm not being very articulate. But I just thought he was incredible, and I did really like Army Hammer in this. Don't get me wrong, he makes a great performance. But it, the, as soon as I left, you know, me and my boyfriend were both like, "Wow, that that Timothy mm. Chalamet guy is like insane." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's a really beautiful film and it's one that i just think people should go and experience for themselves you know with or without hype because i just think it's one of those movies that takes you somewhere else no matter what you know doesn't need to do any more or less i think it does do more but you don't mm. need to be promised with more do you know what i mean it just really does transport you and that's that's a great reason to go to the cinema i think I've actually, just to talk about hype for a second, I've started to feel like hype is harmful. Mm. I used to think, I don't know whether I'm just like being more sensitive to it or whether it's actually just got more intense. But up until the last couple of years, I felt like hype was something that happened in the background. If you read a lot of film reviews and you were interested in that particular world, you could get quite caught up in it. But if you if you wanted to tune out of it, mm. it was really easy to do that. Whereas now, I think actually La La Land was the film that made me begin to sort of cogitate this opinion that I felt with that film that you weren't actually allowed to just go and enjoy it Mm. you had to be either like pre-defensive because you thought you were going to love it and you wanted to sort of fend off the takes that were critical or you had to go in critical yeah yeah you couldn't just go in and say oh well you know I enjoyed that film there were some things I you know maybe would have preferred if they'd done differently but overall good evening out kind of thing and I thought it was interesting your piece that you wrote about the 10 year anniversary of Juno yeah um, last week yeah has a really good section about this because I don't think I was aware this is what I mean about like it becoming more present to me I was by no means aware when Juno was having its like awards campaign the way that it had this very intense like Juno's the best film ever is Mm. Juno a terrible Mm anti-abortion film well Juno is interesting because it 2007 Mm. so 10 years ago it had the exact same release structure hype backlash journey as La La Land because it premiered at Venice just like La La Land did got standing ovation was the audience favorite of the festival same with La La Land and then had all these like incredibly positive critical reviews in the following two or three weeks. And then as it was released, loads of people were really like, no, this is awful. And by the time that the awards Mm. nominations actually came around, this whole conversation had already happened where people loved it or they hated it. And you kind of had to pick a side and you couldn't, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. But then I also think that part of the problem with hype is that people want to be contrarian i sometimes think yeah but i want to name check That's a couple true. of writers just because they were the people who who kind of kick-started this conversation for me on twitter today um and that's caroline seed sorry if i'm not pronouncing her name right at the av club who said she loved ladybird but wish she had been able to see it without so much hype surrounding it and mm-hmm. then alana bennett who's a great writer for buzzfeed said i'm beginning to view hype as a weird almost threatening thing it can bring so much good to a movie but also feels like it can be taken away at any moment hype is so fickle which I think is very true. And we've even had that this week with the cat person short story from the New Yorker where people love it or then it gets hyped so much before some people have read it and then they read it and they're like, oh, guys, it was all right. But like, (laughs) why are you going off about it so much? And it's so funny the way these things have this cultural journey. For me, I just think if you know that hype can put you off something, don't engage with it. (laughs) 
don't engage in it yeah allow no, yourself to be surprised um, and pleased if that's the way the best way for you to interact with something for me no amount of hype will ruin a movie for me if anything i get quite swept up along in it so i'm the same and so i'm excited to see this film whenever i do get the opportunity mm. and i'm sure i will have a really nice time but i do feel i'm having to like put up my defenses a little bit higher these days to kind of keep that that point of view protected from this you know (laughs) and actually what I yearn for these days is the way that we experienced Carol do you remember when Carol Mm. came Mm. out and we just we went to that really really lovely like proper reel-to-reel screening and then a really nice Q&A and I think it was really early on as well so I'd barely read anything about Mm. it and it was like really wintry and it was the perfect film because it's a Christmassy film and all this kind of totally. stuff. That's kind of how I want to experience every film. Yeah, I totally if, agree. You know. And that's how I experienced La La Land. And I think, you know, I just went mm. into this screening and everyone was like on their feet and delighted by it. And it was really exciting to be there. And I guess that's one of the like privileges of being someone who gets to go to press screenings of movies. Yeah, um, you do get to see things at the beginning of their cycle. Yeah, yeah. but... You know, I, I do think you'll really enjoy Call Me By Your Name, not to mm. not to hype it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm interested to know if listeners have views about this, actually. Yeah. Do you find yourself giving in to hype? Do you just try and avoid it altogether? Do you sort of tentatively dip your toe in and then run away? You yeah. know, yeah, let us know. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Now we're going to talk about Leonora Carrington, The Lost Surrealist, which is a BBC4 documentary celebrating the life and work of the British artist, who through her long life went from a celebrated debutante in London to an exile in Mexico City and produced some extraordinary art along the way. So it's the 100th anniversary of Leonora Carrington's birth, I believe. She was born in 1917, right? That's right, yes. So there have been a lot of new releases to coincide Mm -hmm. with that Um, I think there was a big exhibition at one of the galleries in London earlier this year might still be going on Mm -hmm. there's a new biography that's been 
produced and there have been films like this one. They've also published collections of her short stories, I think, or collections of her fiction as well. They have, yes. So I think it's... The collection is called The Debutante and Other Stories because mm-hmm. um, I'd say prior to watching this film, my only contact with the work of Leonora Carrington is the short story The Debutante. Which is this strange story about a debutante who, you know, is going to all these balls and being introduced into society and but also goes to the zoo and meets a hyena and the hyena, like, tries to take the place of one of her debutante friends by eating her and wearing her face and it's... I guess, is it a metaphor about cages and feeling like a wild animal in a strange and suppressed society? I don't know. Yeah, it it is exactly. And given that we know that Carrington had a very, uh, she hated her whole debutante season and that whole whole life. It's the protagonist of the story herself that swaps places with Diana and she does it consensually. She like, she says to the hyena, would you like to be me at this ball because I hate it wow. so much? And then I think it's her maid. The hyena like eats her face off and then wears the face to the ball. But the best bit, I just wanted to read this little bit. Oh, please um, do. At the end of the story. So the debutante who's been replaced by the hyena, she just stays in her room and reads Gulliver's Travels when she's meant to be at the ball. <laughs> and it says, my mother entered pale with rage. We were coming to seat ourselves at the table, she said, when the thing who was in your place rose and cried, I smell a little strong, eh? Well, as for me, I do not eat cake. With these words, she removed her face and ate it. A great leap and she disappeared out the window. Wow. <laughs> it's such a funny yeah. story, but also so grim. It's really kind of dark and cartoonish humour, isn't it? Mm. It's almost Dahl-esque or something. But anyway, so yeah... Th- I knew a little bit about Carrington's writing, but very little about her life or her Mm. art. And she is primarily revered as a surrealist painter. Mm -hmm. This is something I wanted to raise early on, actually, in our discussion of this, is the title of this documentary is Leonora Carrington, colon, The Lost Surrealist. Mm. And the whole framing of it is, you know she's an extraordinary artist she wasn't really appreciated in her own time the surrealist movement was all were all these men who thought women are just you know something that you painted naked and you didn't actually consider that they might have artistic ideas to express of their own and you know now in our enlightened 21st Mm. century we have rediscovered her and found her because she was lost I don't think Leonora Carrington would have agreed that she was lost. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting framework, isn't it? And I've Mm. seen that in a lot of the coverage of whether it's book reviews of new books coming out or the press releases for those books or anything or exhibitions. It's this kind of idea of like, we have to sell this woman to you as through that experience rather than being like, this is a really cool painter that you need to know about and you need to you know that her paintings were so incredible it's difficult isn't it because at the end of the day that is often something that makes people want to read about something and it makes me want to read about something if I hear like oh amazing female artist not celebrated in her time but it can also quickly fall into a trap of just being a narrative that's not actually that connected to the person that at the center Mm. of it I like this documentary and I thought it was made in a very nice and interesting and easy to watch style Mm. you know there was some kind of talking head stuff from her sons and you know close friends and stuff but primarily it was told with archive footage and shots of her house Mm. and it was more immersive I think that sometimes BBC4 documentaries can feel a little bit like they're holding their subject at arm's length by 
only allowing other people to talk about them and maybe having a presenter that stands in front of the yeah, camera. Yeah, and they follow a formula sometimes, don't they, which makes them feel a bit less compelling. And this film didn't really have that at all. It was, you know, it felt quite inside what was happening in her life at the time. Yeah, this whole frame of she's lost and now we found mm. her, I didn't quite buy into because I just don't think that would be how it looked at the time. Yeah, and lots of people I'm sure from, from Mexico City were sort of saying... Oh, well, she's always been a great artist of ours, you know, mm. even though she's British, but she ended up living in, in Mexico City for most of her life. There's no question that she's celebrated in these interviews with people from Mexico City. So that's another interesting element of what did it mean to be lost if there's a difference in kind of yeah. national perspectives on somebody yeah so as i say i didn't know very much about her but i read our colleague yozushi wrote a long piece for the new statesman about her a few months ago mm. and he actually explains how she came to end up in mexico city mm. and it was you know in the late 30s she'd been tried to her family had tried to push her into this whole life of society via being a debutante and stuff she'd really kicked against that mm. she'd moved to paris uh she met max ernst she was having an affair with him war came on he got detained in a nazi internment camp basically a whole lot of stuff started going wrong because it was europe in like 1938 and everything was going wrong mm. and she ended up going um you know how in Casablanca everyone's so desperate to get to Lisbon mm. so that they can go to America she went to Portugal mm. because Portugal was neutral in the war and from there she managed to sail to Mexico and she just never went back because there was never any reason to yeah it's interesting as well because I think it's pretty explicitly this documentary sold as a biographical film yeah and we get to see lots of her paintings. We we get kind of like, as they're talking about a certain period in her life, they'll like zoom in on one of the paintings. There's no real discussion of the paintings. There's no real discussion no. of how they were different to the work of other surrealists, for example. Or often there was kind of like, they gesture at like, oh, she did very symbolic paintings. There's no discussion of what symbols are actually at play in her paintings or anything like that. And that's fine if that's the goal of the documentary is to be a biographical program informing us about the events of this person's life but mm. it feels frustrating to me not to get any sort of wider discussion about her art especially if it's being framed as like oh her art wasn't as valued as as other surrealists you're like well the best way to do that then is to do it by valuing it and demonstrating what was valuable about it rather than just talking about that, you know? Yeah, that's true. I'd love to see... Have you watched any of Valdemar Janáček's art mm. films for the BBC? Mm. I'm absolutely obsessed with them. I think they're amazing because he's, he's a very, very expert like art historian and critic, but he's also quite a down-to-earth, slightly gobby, like short, fat mm. man. And he doesn't seem to be very bound up by like what you're supposed to like mm. and what you're not supposed to mm. like he just likes to stand in front of something and say wow yeah <laughs> really good yeah you yeah. know um and i'd love to see him do a program about her like he did a really interesting series a couple of years ago about just the idea of the baroque in art mm. which was a lot of him like going into these really ornate churches in italy and austria i mean like just like wow look at all the gold and i'd love someone with that kind of experience but also that kind of enthusiasm to take on something like Leonora totally, Because I do think, even in my really limited understanding of these things, surrealism is about, you know, melding worlds, melding the unreal and mm. the real. But it's also about 
having fun sometimes yeah, totally. i think totally i think that's true and that i did not get from this film yeah and she had some really dark periods in her life but so as with so mm. many women artists that does become the main focal point of the program and mental illness and you know we, and i understand that that's also something that's important to talk about so i don't want to sit here and be like oh it's fetishized and therefore it's not we just shouldn't mention this part of her life but it's also interesting to me if you're going to go down that route i'd also like to see lots of kind of not necessarily academic as you say it can be lively and fun but discussion of the actual work itself alongside that but you know sometimes it's unfair to not take a, a piece of television on its own terms and obviously the terms mm. of this was to be biographical so you have to uh, not criticize it for doing that yeah that's true and i have to say as someone who knew very little about her going in i definitely learned yeah loads. and i really want to read some of her fiction and and see some of her mm. paintings in a more discursive context definitely So last week I recommended that Anna have a listen of Tracks, which is a BBC fiction podcast that is set in the 80s and it follows kind of unusual, surreal, dystopian, scary happenings in a part of Wales called Snowdonia. And there have been two seasons now. I think they've just finished playing the second one on Radio 4, but it's all available as a podcast on iTunes or on the BBC iPlayer app thingy so yeah Anna how did you get on with tracks yeah it's really weird as you say and really (laughs) unsettling and kind of more surreal than I was expecting it to be you get this quite disconnected quite dazed voiceover from Rachel who is the kind of lead character also the cold open as it were the kind of like weird way in is this yeah uh, answer phone message to I think, if if my understanding is right, because I haven't heard the first series, but to Dr. Helen Ash, who was the protagonist of the last series. Yes. And then you get this vignette of a mother out looking for fossils with her four-year-old son. Something, you you know, it's radio, so something weird happens. You can hear something disturbing happening, but you don't really know what's happening. She's screaming for her son, and then he's missing. And we've talked before, haven't we, about how missing child mysteries are so... People are so obsessed with them. Yeah, Um, both fictional and non-fictional. Totally, especially in the last five years or even less, it feels to me just like something that has become just like every single kind of prestige mystery has a missing child at the centre of it. But there's something kind of almost in a stranger things, but not at all way. There's something slightly more potentially supernatural, it seems, about this disappearance Mm. because quite quickly there's like, they don't find any of the kids like belongings or anything, but they do find a whole bunch of like peanut shells and they go to this woman's house and it seems like she's made a bed for the boy, but he's not there but also she's got like a massive belly like all this kind of very weird stuff is going on it's all quite mixed up time wise it feels like Mm. as well like I've listened to I think three episodes now and I don't feel like you can always trust that you're actually hearing things in chronological order Mm. I don't know whether when I get to the end that will be borne out but I just feel like sometimes I'm I'm learning things out of order obviously Mm. deliberately on the part of the writers Mm. but yeah I think it's 
pretty good. I went actually went back and listened to one episode of the first series just to give myself some context. Mm-hmm. And I would really recommend doing that. The first episode of the first series is extraordinary radio. As Romola Garai plays um, Dr. Helen Ash. And the main thing that happens in the first episode is that she witnesses a plane crash. Mm. She was on her way to a small airfield to meet her father, who she's never met before. And he's coming to visit her. And they're sort of reconnecting after her whole lifetime apart. And she sees his plane crash right in front of her and she's kind of running around trying to help people as mm. a medic but also looking for her father who she doesn't really know who he looks what he looks like mm. and I feel like sometimes with BBC radio dramas the parts where stuff actually happens are the weakest parts because the sound effects are really cheesy <laughs> yeah and it's been like oh no he fell off a cliff yeah. that kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. voice acting but this is great. Oh, great. Like, they don't go overboard with the sound effects and Romola Garai can really make you believe stuff with her voice wow um, I do really like her um yeah me too I really think she's great we saw her in a play didn't we and she was very good in that but anyway yeah so it's it's very weird I I've only listened to the first episode so I'm totally in the dark we, we're given so little information I really don't know what's happening but I am intrigued and Honestly, it made me feel like a bit uncomfortable. Mm, yeah, same. Which I, it's obviously like not a feeling that is enjoyable, but it's a testament to the show that it can make that happen because I really, you think of, I think of BBC radio dramas as being very twee and edgeless and probably not the kind of thing that you would go home and be like, wow, this is, this is the cutting edge mm. of culture. It did make me feel really kind of disturbed and weird, which is not not something I'm necessarily expecting from a BBC radio production. I think it's pretty good. And I am surprised and pleased that they were allowed to make it as a podcast first and foremost. Yeah. Because I think it really works in the sense that, you know, you don't necessarily hear it with like the framing around it of like, and now the 6pm drama from Radio 4, you know, it just starts. Yeah. I don't think it's sort of unsettling feeling would work quite so well if yeah. you had the continuity announcer like leading you in. I'm sure that's um, true, yeah. And also that you can just like burn through all five, six episodes in a go if you want to mm-hmm. and really get immersed in it. It's very different, but it made me think of there's a an American fiction podcast called The Bright Sessions, which I listened to all of it in about two days because I got completely obsessed with it. Mm. And uh, this gave me that same kind of feeling. So... Yeah, I think they've taken good things from the the podcast medium and used them to advantage. Totally agree. Yeah. So for next week, we've got a real gem coming up. Mm -hmm. A highlight of the Christmas calendar. I'm really excited about it. I know you're really excited about it. So we thought we'd do it in this slot because it's it's fun. Something we want to cover, even if it's perhaps not the kind of thing that we, we would do as our main item. So the recommend for next week is going to be Judy Dench colon my passion for trees <laughs> which is um a, a bbc documentary entertainment slash documentary uh program about judy dench and her obsession with trees In- includes such choice quotes as judy dench saying my life is just trees now trees and champagne <laughs> which is just oh, like this- a baller move from judy dench but There's I love some it. incredible promotional pictures out for this as well, where Judy Dench is like lovingly touching the bark of a tree. Judy Dench is using an ear trumpet to listen to the tree. You don't see enough uh, ear trumpets in promotional you images don't. these days. You don't. Caroline um, may or may it, not have made one of these images, her computer background, guys. I have. It, I've, 
I just have it's the it's the ear trumpet one it's fantastic <laughs> yeah it just makes me really happy every time I look at it because there's a there's very much a kind of I'm old now YOLO type yeah, vibe to it, yeah. which is like I just really like trees okay and I'm not afraid to, for you to know it I so, said yeah. that this looks like notes on a scandal but with trees instead of Cape Blanchette which I think is very true um, and I also love it yes. because it feels like the kind of thing that has come out of a BBC generator. You know how they always have like Penelope <laughs> Wilton's hidden villages, Joanna Lumley's yep. favourite steam trains, like all their programmes yes. literally just like insert like old British woman and twee thing. It's so like Mary, yep. Mary Berry's pearl necklaces. It's just like all really, really weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and actually most of the ones that you just said there are real um, yeah some of them are indeed re- i'm like looking forward to i don't know penelope keith oh yeah, yeah. she has Pen- i think it's penelope keith's hidden villages it's probably uh, yeah, like penelope is, yeah. wilton's i don't know water mills of britain or something <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh and there was that program where um prunella scales and timothy west went around on a canal boat <laughs> that, is that definitely is they've, is in this vibe as well they've got one coming up that's literally like Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders going to different wine regions and drinking the wine or the champagne. Yeah, it's like they literally go to champagne and like taste different kinds of champagne. Cool. <laughs> You're like literally who's making who's made this BBC like BBC One five pm documentary <laughs> generator because um, I love them. But yeah, so yeah. Judy Dench, my passion for trees. Next week on Seriously. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you enjoyed on the show we love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com and if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.